I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are international, on air nationally across the United States and in West Africa, in Ghana and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, our main event conversation, Beyonce's Lemonade, our hot topics, Harriet Tubman's $20 bill, hot topic two, Prince's death. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Professor Blair Kelly and Lene Denise. Professor Blair Kelly is Associate Professor of History at North Carolina State University and author of Right to Ride, Streetcar Boycotts and African-American Citizenship in the Era of Plessy versus Ferguson, which won the 2010 Letitia Woods Brown Best Book Award from the Association of Black Women Historians. Lene Denise is a global DJ scholar, a cultural producer, and a musical essayist whose work, which she calls entertainment with a thesis, has taken her across the United States to London, Holland, and South Africa as she researches black social and political movements to present the dynamic range of music of the diaspora. Lene Denise is founder of Wild Seed Cultural Group. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Let's start with our main event. Beyonce dropped her sixth album and her second visual album, Lemonade. Take one pint of water, add a half pound of sugar, the juice of eight lemons, the zest of half lemon. Pour the water from one jug, then into the other several times. Strain through a clean napkin Grandmother, the alchemist, you spun gold out of this hard life, conjured beauty from the things left behind, found healing where it did not live, discovered the antidote in your own kitchen, broke the curse with your own two hands. You passed these instructions down to your daughter, who then passed it down to her daughter. I had my ups and downs, but I always find the inner strength to pull myself up. I was serving them. As with all things surrounding this particular black woman, her album dropped, and frankly, we did too. Folk dropped what they were doing to listen, watch, engage, respond, exchange, discuss, dissect, debate, write, go on radio, go on TV. It's Beyonce. We needed to talk. 
Lemonade defies easy description or neat categorization. Sonically borderless. It moves through and from reggae to country to rock. It incorporates poetry. It is geographically located in the U.S. South, but the Spanish moss and the trees somehow remind me of the baobab trees in Africa. It moves between past, present, and future. It is a love letter that makes public black women's hidden emotional selves, black people's grief, unknown to public spaces that ignore, deny, dismiss the range of black women's emotionality, the panorama of it. And here... In Beyonce's Lemonade, we see whole selves, whole black women selves, intergenerational, collective, sisterhood, community, alone, held up, with crew, rocking squad, in the hood, in the big house, on the porch, in the kitchen, on the streets. Beyonce journeys through relationships, present, past, parental, intergenerational, and a full range of humanity, of emotionality, intuition, denial, anger, apathy, Emptiness, loss, accountability, reformation, forgiveness, resurrection, hope, and redemption. You can taste the dishonesty, it's all over your breath. As you pass it off so cavalier, but even that's a test. Constantly aware of it all, my lonely pressed against the walls of your world. Pray to catch you whispering. I'm praying to catch me listening. I'm praying to catch you whispering. I'm praying to catch me. I'm praying to catch you whispering. I'm praying to catch me listening. I'm praying to catch me. From hold up, to sorry, to don't hurt yourself, to daddy lessons, to freedom, to sandcastles. Musically, I am rung all the way out. Its complexity is comforting. It is a collaborations masterclass. Cinematically, we get Khalil Joseph. Musically, we get samples, writer, producer credits that include Jack White, James Blake, Diplo, Milo X and Burt Bacharach. In the tradition of bringing Africa to her table musically, lyrically, and via her dance, Beyonce is introducing us to writers. If we hadn't heard of her before, we met Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie on Flawless. And on Lemonade, we meet one of my favorites, the Somali Muslim poet and writer, Wosan Shire. Fasted for 60 days, wore white, abstained from mirrors, Abstain from sex. Slowly did not speak another word. In that time, my hair, I grew past my ankles. I slept on a mat on a floor. I swallowed a sword. I levitated, went to the basement, confessed my sins and was baptized in a river. Got on my knees and said amen and said I mean. I whipped my own back and asked for dominion at your feet. I threw myself into a volcano. I drank the blood and drank the wine. I sat alone and begged and bent at the waist for God. I crossed myself and thought I saw the devil. I grew thick in skin on my feet. I bathed in bleach and plugged my menses with pages from the holy book. But still inside me, coiled deep, was the need to know. Are you cheating, cheating on me? Are you cheating on me?
Infidelity, betrayal, self-doubt, wounds, trauma, historical scars, intergenerational betrayal. I tried to make a home out of you. But doors lead to trapdoors. A stairway leads to nothing. Unknown women wander the hallways at night. Where do you go when you go quiet? You remind me of my father, a magician. Able to exist in two places at once. In the tradition of men in my blood, you come home at 3 a.m. and lie to me. It is private grief made public, not just hers, but seeing Sabrina Fulton, mother of Trayvon Martin, and Leslie McSpadden, mother of Mike Brown, is a reminder and embrace of all mothers and their sons. It is the reality of a messy love. It is witnessing up close a black revolutionary love, not one that is perfect or pristine, but that is messy and loud and painful and vulnerable, all the reality that is us. And then came the think pieces. They offered myriad musical, intellectual, spiritual insights into this album and its maker. From Professor Melissa Harris Perry's call and response in L.com, featuring a squad of writers and scholars, including Dr. Brittany Cooper, Jamila Lemieux, and Michael Denzel Smith, to NPR's conversation between Southern badass scholar Dr. Regina Bradley and writer Dream Hampton, to the writing of Jamila King in Mike.com, words have been are being and continue to be written, breaking down this album. And still, there's more to say. Let's talk Beyonce's Lemonade. Lene Denise, let me start with you. Esther, I, I've never witnessed a pop artist evolve and develop in this way. Um, I've, I've never seen an artist listen to the critique of the community about her work and address those critiques through the steady improvement of her work. I've not seen anyone turn on pop music the way that she has and actually she documents this turning point in a song um, titled haunted from her 2013 album where she says all the i do is boring all these record labels are boring i don't trust these record labels i'm torn and to use that power given to her by that same industry she doesn't trust and is bored by to build like a protective wall around a new and exciting brand of work i think is just absolutely um, liberating and radical. And then this level of collaboration that you spoke about um, and the intentional selection of some of the most brilliant artists in the game from Khalil Joseph to Watson um, to the other incredible cinematographers and stylists, it's just like somebody has done their homework. Um, this, this level of elevation in her work is dizzying and undeniable. And um, I, I mean, I truly feel like the standards of popular music have been changed, and that's no small thing. It's like, what will other artists have to do at this point to be relevant? Does that mean that we'll experience less mindless, bubblegum, Taylor Smith, soulless, mediocre music? Because if so, I'm for that. Um, and, I, and I also feel like, you know, this is an extension of, of activism and the spirit of activism moving through this nation and globally, quite frankly. So Beyonce is a win for black music. Um, she's created a new kind of visibility for black women that I'd like to compare to that of films like The Color Purple or The Women of Booster Place. Um, 
fictional stories written with an intersectional lens that force us to look more deeply at black patriarchy, at sisterhood, um, at black excellence and artistic integrity. And I really appreciated Jamila King's piece um, because she brought in or brought attention to black women's artistic agency and showed us what a lack of control looks like, which is the monstrosity that the new Nina Simone movie is. So Nina's, you know, lack of control is represented in this movie, but also something that led to her kind of public emotional decline. So her well-being was threatened by that lack of control, and she talks about it publicly throughout her career. So it was excellent to bring that kind of the impact of that, you know, that loss and power of your work to the forefront through Beyonce's work. And also that Nina Simone was demonized for politicizing her work as well. So in this way, Beyonce's movement as an artist is maybe Nina's revenge. Maybe it's Billie Holiday's revenge and Whitney Houston's revenge and Phyllis Hyman's revenge. So I'm all for it. Professor Black Kelly. Lemonade has really been revelatory um, for um, pop culture and pop music, really centering black women's experiences as um, crucial, as universal, as speaking to the themes of humanity um, in in a really gorgeous way. And I love that this is a moment when um, not only do we get to see Beyonce's agency, but we get to see her genius. Um, oftentimes people are saying, you know, Beyonce's not that smart. She's a brand. She's a product. Uh, she's not her own person. I think this provides no home for the idea that she is not an artist in her own right um, and not really a forerunner of black women's thought in pop culture at this point. Um, she now, for me, falls in the pantheon of people like a Stevie Wonder, a Prince, a Michael Jackson, in that they are moving culture in dramatic new ways that we didn't imagine possible, um, given the rules of the recording industry or music industry or video making. Um, I love that she is at the forefront of that um, with a swagger and a beauty and a confidence and an ugliness, a willingness not to be pretty at every moment, but instead to be quite real. And her struggle for that um, sense of self is something we've been seeing throughout her career, right? Really, um, I fell in love with Beyonce when she found her, like, full voice. I think of Deja Vu um, and where she starts to growl and roar, and we can hear the capability of her voice. And and I got a sense of who she was behind the pretty pop package that we had gotten earlier in her career. So it's just um, this sort of desire to historically inform us, to really be real, to speak with her real voice, to sing with her real voice, to show us all the registers uh, that are available to her in not only in her voice, but in her filmmaking and her vision of what this might mean. And then also just to be real about her marriage and her family and her life and her, her mother and her grandmother and Jay's grandma and, you know, just, you know, centering her own experiences, her own struggle and showing us that, um, you know, I'm not too pretty to, as she says at one point to, to, to feel this low and, and, it just reminds us that we all are in that same kind of struggle. So it's just, it's personal, and it's this big, big meta thing that's just gorgeous to behold. I want us to um, talk a bit about some of the um, critique that I've heard and that I've read in, in across different posts over these since the album dropped. And one of the critiques that I hear is the idea that 
the black women who are in video with her, for example, when we see Serena Williams in Sorry, that um, there is a concern that there was this, this idea that Serena is a prop, that she doesn't take center stage. I, I disagree with it because I, there's a particular moment on that track where, for example, Beyonce's occupying this chair, which is clearly the throne, and then you see Serena occupying the chair. And for me, that what that tells us is that in this world, all black women get to be, you, you're a queen of your own world, but it's your world. It's the world that you create. And so the, 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 the throne is the place which you've got to take because you're that bad of a, of a black chick, basically. So you can actually take it. And that throne, she's signifying um, Serena's photo shoot when she's sitting in the mm-hmm. throne. And so mm-hmm. she's, she's honoring Serena in that moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't disagree more with the sort of belief that, you know, Beyonce is once again occupying this throne and and kind of stealing this kind of, uh, I guess, opportunity to be regal and royal from this other black woman. First of all, I trust Serena and I trust that she, you know, has the ability to um, kind of decide whether or not Beyonce's intentions are are ones that are safe for her. I mean, I think if anything, Beyonce put herself in conversation with, you know, a very important conversation that's happened around Serena's body. I mean, mm-hmm. we just had, you know, yeah. we understand that Serena has dealt with white supremacy in one of the most, you know, um, <clears throat> insidious ways. She has boycotted several, you know, tennis championships. Her body has been compared to that of machines and animals. It was super liberating for me to see her dancing, to see her movement, which is also consistent with what she does on the court and what she's been critiqued for, bringing these sort of like black cultural expressions into these historically white spaces um, and, and being, you know, criticized for such. So no, I saw it as an important move. I thought, I thought it was an extension of where we are in America with conversations around our bodies. And I also think it's great to see um, a a kind of sisterhood of, Um, women on this level and oftentimes we're saying well you know Beyonce hates Rihanna and Beyonce is is mad at the people from Destiny's Child and they're all at war with each other and that's the kind of stuff we've we've been told we should want to consume this moment Mm -hmm. allows us to see two women on par with one another um, Mm -hmm. really pushing the boundaries of their fields and and having fun together and sharing their space absolutely absolutely one of the things that that just was so powerful for me was the um, the vulnerability, the public vulnerability and the humanity of that. And I actually, I, I thought about just the honesty and the range of our emotions when she goes through intuition, denial, anger, apathy, emptiness, loss, accountability, reformation, forgiveness, resurrection, hope and redemption. And I mean, I guess that there are ways in which people have talked about it as a particular reflection on her relationship with Jay. But for me, it becomes a much larger conversation and a much bigger project in terms of black women and this particular moment where there has been so much visualized loss. Not that there's been so much loss in comparison to the past, but there's been visualized recycled loss with the ongoing murders of young black um, and brown men and women. So seeing Sabrina Fulton and her, a photo of her son, Trayvon Martin, who was killed by George Zimmerman, who was acquitted. Seeing Mike Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, and holding the photo of Mike Brown, who we, who, whose body we watched literally drip blood on a Ferguson street, prompting 
this huge um, movement that we continue to talk about today. But what I think about as well is the idea that our feelings have range and the panorama of that range is important to us, that there is no shortcut to the forgiveness space. So you're required to have the fullness of your rage and be present in it. You're required to have the fullness of your denial and be present in that, that your emptiness is real, that the loss is real, that when you're on that ledge, when she, she steps on that ledge and turns to camera and she's crying before she jumps off, that those are all really important moments in black women's emotionality journey that I feel that we're so often denied because we've created and we have this inter kind of generational inheritance and legacy of an untreated trauma. And so the grief that we feel never gets its full expression. And one of the things that I loved is the fullness of the expression of a range of feelings and that if you allow that space, so we get to if we're going to heal, Let's do it gloriously. But you can't get to there without having your rage, without having your denial. I wondered what you all felt about that. I, I couldn't agree again more. Um, when I saw her jump off the ledge um, and enter the water, I was like, oh, I've felt that way before. I've hmm. submerged my feelings and played off and tried to pretend before. And I never even thought about it consciously, but I, I have done that. And when she rendered that visible for me and sort of this, you know, muddying through water, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what you do when you confront the truth that you don't want and something that shouldn't be. You know, that your first reaction is like, no, that's not real. Let me you know, improve myself. And so Warsan's um, poetry in that moment was so profound. And I was like, yes, you know, take us through the steps and show us what we all experience. And then when you know, the water breaks and she's sort of born into her anger um, in those doors, and prances down the street smashing. She's just mad. She's, you know, but she's happy that she's mad because she's, she's, it's better to be mad in that moment. But then the mad turns into a real and tangible mad. Like, I'm actually mad at you and the things you did. And so she's in, the, in that, um, the parking garage. So it was just amazing to see um, a process. And so folks are saying, well, maybe this really isn't real for her. Maybe this is like an imaginary story. It could be in, in that it might be surreal, but... The, the, her ability to render it so plainly, I think it, it comes from something real in her life. I mean, and I, and, you know, and, and so I, I'm very thankful to her. Um, I'm thankful to her and Jay in being willing to render that visible uh, for the kind of uh, healing and help that I think people can get from it. I think that's an important thing to talk about, too, is like Jay's involvement in that and, and whether or not she's talking about him in their marriage becomes secondary to the fact that they are still in a marriage and these messages have been available for us to work through our own stuff with, right? But I also think that, you know, part of what Hollywood and the entertainment or the music industry does specifically is dehumanizes black folks through um, reducing opportunities um, or almost abolishing opportunities for us to express a full range of personal experiences and of our of our lives in America, I think the fact that we have been able to see range and and the fact that that's new, almost new is is really an indication of of the entertainment industry. Um, and so I love that she is 
working with these artists to bring these ideas, these experiences to fruition beautifully, like cinematically flawless work. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I do love the fact that redemption is a part of that and that we do get mm-hmm. to see that it starts with intuition. Um, it, took, it took me on a similar journey, as I said before, that um, Color Purple did. You know, I can see, um, you know, Celie's point, you know, Celie's, uh, you know, the, the speech that she gave at the table where she's just like, Mr. Listen, you will not touch me again. Or the part where she has the knife at his throat and, and she comes in and saves his life. Um, but also at the end where he is forced in his isolation to deal with the pain that he's caused and also be able to redeem himself through, you know, um, being able to be in a loving relationship again with Suge and Seeley, which I think is really significant and part of one of the things that Alice Walker talked about struggling with when she surrendered the story to Hollywood and to Steven Spielberg was the fact that that redemption wasn't really highlighted in the film. So I, that, that full range is something that we've been denied and that's, part of why it's surprising and exciting. And I think, you know, you, you remind me a little bit of the importance of thinking about history in this moment and that Beyonce, mm-hmm. at one point in her, her anger and her accounting of what has happened to her, she says, you know, she thinks about her mother and she's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm living the same life. And then she thinks about mm-hmm. her grandmother and she thinks, oh, mm-hmm. wow, okay. So this mm-hmm. is bigger than me, and that history mm-hmm. gives her a way to recover, um, mm-hmm. to remake a relationship that is new in this moment, mm-hmm. that one that is informed mm-hmm. by the strength of women around her um, mm-hmm. and her legacy. Yes. And it's also yep. not just her actual family, but, you know, Jay's family, that it yep. was his grandmother who was the one who was, you know, I, I was given lemons. And, you know, so she, you have to think about her her role as a mother, her role as a, a wife, and her role in this lineage of women uh, that she can draw on for strength. And so it's just really, really powerful. The, the Mardi Gras Indian clearing the table. Mm. Um, mm. You know, there's so many wonderful um, signatories. The, the, the presence of black women's bodies in plantation spaces as beautiful mm-hmm. and as whole mm-hmm. and as free. It's just uh, so much to give us. It's just so, so, so yeah. And, I mean, also the use of water is a symbol of ritual and cleansing and a commitment to breaking the cycle, you know, both for herself and her daughter. I think about that sentence in the section of intuition where she says, in the tradition of men in my blood, you come home at 3 a.m. and lie to me. And that those words in the in the tradition of men in my blood. And so what I love is how she takes what is intimate and personal and recognizes this is our collective conversation as black women and black men. And what she reminds us of in that moment is that when women lead conversations, when black women lead conversations in which they own that space, we bring the entire community. So Jay is there, her daughter is there, her mother is there, her mother finding new love is there, the women of the streets are there, brothers are there, the grandchildren are there, Everybody still comes because there's a way in which um, black women's leadership is never a solitary space. And the reason why that's really important to me, I've, I've, important to me is I've read a lot about locating this in the antebellum South, that imagery. Um, and for me, sitting here in West Africa, Accra, what I love about it is I also locate home, but not uh, a black Southern tradition. I've never traveled to the South of of 
in any southern state in the U.S. ever in my life. But when I see that long table and all those women either side, I see my mother's village outside Kumasi in Akumadan. So I see the Ashanti of West Africa. When I see the women in the kitchen, I see my mother's sisters, her aunts, my grandmother, who is a farmer. When I see Miss Hattie, I see my mother's people. And what I love about that is, yes, it's the black South, but it's also the global South. When I see all the cleansing rituals with when I see all the cleansing rituals with water, I think about Bahia in Brazil. Like again, I've never been to this house, but I look at the Bahia in Brazil having traveled there in, in the millennium and watching the traditions of hardcore traditions of the Yoruba, the Nigerian Yoruba women who in white go out to water and hold these cleansing, powerful rituals that are rooted in what they carried over as enslaved Africans to Brazil and that have stayed to this very day. Even within that racism, they've protected and maintained those cleansing rituals. So that what I love about what I see, it is a global black people all intimately and specifically located and so I love that Dr. Regina Bradley who is a badass southern scholar can locate really specific black southern sensibilities and then in that same lens I find home too. Yeah, it, it, I, there's a film I teach um, in my oral history course. It's called The Language We Cry In. It's talking about the, the bringing of um, a mourning song um, that was passed down in a Gullah community in South Carolina and the return of that community to West Africa to, to find the people whose song that was. And it just, um, the, you know, we all are carrying things that we don't even know we have on us. In that mm. in, in that moment of mourning, in that moment of trauma, we we are all living the same kinds of things. That it, when we Beyonce is rendering visible for us in a really amazing way. I really am moved by the way that Beyonce very specifically engages the Black South because she engages it, she engages it as a Black American motherland, um, mm. which is one that holds, I guess, the closest story to our connection and relationship with Africa. And so in that black Southern space, you do find polyrhythms, call and response, Yoruba, Ifa, Santeria, Christianity. Um, you do find a sort of global South in the black American South because of you know, um, the dispersion, the forced dispersion of black bodies into that space. And I see, and I think, you know, I, I saw formation and what came up for me. I mean, I, I, I guess at this point it's pretty obvious is Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust. Yeah. But I also see hints of yeah. Toni Morrison's sort of like complex speculative fiction and mm -hmm. the Victorian style images and costumes and styling for me gave me Octavia Butler's Kindred. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I felt Dana, I felt, I see, you know, Khalil Joseph's eyes through his lens on black women um, I see a, a parallel story also happening, which is slightly different from what we've discussed, but also with Janet Jackson and her fight for independence and a break from her father. You know, when Janet Jackson says, when I was 17, I did what people told me. In this case, she is talking about her professional break from Joe Jackson, her former manager, similarly to Matthew Knowles. Um, and also, you know, even the what have you done for me lately, you know, sort of resistance to black boy my girls are on my side, we are here, you know, and we're not going to be taken advantage of. We love you, but you're going to have to give back. Um, so there's a lot to draw on, which means it's a dynamic piece of work. And I just, you know, close by saying that what I love about it in the end is it's saying that 
it is not that we're going to leave, but we require you to face and reckon with who you are, what you've done, and the ways that you have broken us in order for the healing to happen. So it's really the honesty of it in its totality that really is a particular power that I, um, that I walk away with, a particular power that I walk away with. Beyonce's Lemonade. You hurt yourself. Try not to hurt yourself. Will you play me? Play yourself. Don't play yourself. Will you lie to me? You lie to yourself. funeral now that you've killed me here lies the body of the love of my life whose heart i broke without a gun to my head her heaven will be a love without betrayal ashes to ashes dust to side chicks Curse that will be broken. 
trying to rain, trying to rain on the thunder. Tell the storm I'm nude. I'm a walk, I'm a march on the regular. Painting white flags blue. Love, forgive me, I've been running, running blind in truth. I'm a rain, I'm a rain on this bit of love. Tell the sweet I'm new. Ooh, I'm telling these tears going fall away, fall away. Oh, may the last one burn into flames. Freedom, freedom, I can't move. Freedom, cut me loose. So that was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Professor Blair Kelly and DJ scholar Lene Denise. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in three FMs across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for the first of our hot topics, Harriet Tubman's $20 bill. Harriet Tubman, freedom fighter, abolitionist, enslaved woman, and now the face on an American $20 bill. Money, money, Jack Lew, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, explaining the choice to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. As we went through uh, the candidates, the possible names, uh, I have to tell you the story of Harriet Tubman um, is really a compelling one and the amount of interest, particularly young people writing to me, where they're learning about Harriet Tubman in school the way my generation learned about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. That's great. And I think our money should reflect the contribution of somebody like Harriet Tubman who by sheer force of will, her own determination, she was born a slave, she was illiterate for her whole life, but not only did she lead many people out of slavery through the Underground Railroad, she worked for our army, helping them as a, as a spy uh, to, to help them uh, figure out where to go during the Civil War. And afterwards, she was one of the early uh, leaders in the, in, the, in, the, in the movement to give women the right to vote, the suffrage movement. Um, it's, a, it's just an incredible story about how a person can change life uh, in this great country. Except in this country, the United States that is, what actually happened is Harriet Tubman will be on one side of that $20 bill and Andrew Jackson will be on the other. Andrew Jackson, 17th president of the United States, a two-term president, white slave owner, War of 1812 hero, creator of the 1830 Indian Removal Act, a racist land grab by slave owners that ejected Native Americans from their land, creating what became known as the Trail of Tears, graves to thousands and thousands of Native Americans from cold, hunger, and disease. And Harriet Tubman, an enslaved African woman, born of enslaved parents, illiterate, a reader of the times, a freedom fighter, a woman's right to vote fighter. She would fight and gain her freedom 
and then free thousands more via the Underground Railroad and be instrumental in freedom journeys of enslaved Africans. On the streets of Brooklyn, one of New York's five boroughs, Fusion News heard opinions on putting Harriet on the bill. I don't think that a woman such as Harriet Tubman that did so much for the black community and is such a strong figure should be put on something as disgusting as money. I'm excited for any woman to be on any bill, but to have Harriet Tubman be on the 20, that's amazing. There should be more black people on the American dollar bills. I feel like more important people should be on the dollar bill, not just presidents. Well, I think it's long overdue, and there's no better woman than Harriet Tubman. It kind of speaks to a shift in the culture and a recognition in what she stood for, but it also, you talk about the legacy of who Harriet Tubman is and that she fought for certain things that are ne not necessarily represented in American money. She deserves to be on the bill. I don't think it's a, just, it's disrespectful to her legacy. I mean, isn't Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill right now? He was super racist. Why is he on there? It reminds people about the history of America and, uh, not everybody's in tune, so having a fiscal reminder on money I think is a good idea. And then came other major objections to putting Miss Tubman on a bill. I love Harriet Tubman. Right. I love what she did. But we can find another way to honor her. Maybe uh, maybe a two dollar bill. I think Harriet Tubman is fantastic. I would love to I would love to leave Andrew Jackson and see if we can maybe come up with another denomination. Maybe we do the $2 bill or we do another bill. Ben Carson and Donald Trump of the GOP there. Unsurprising, white men's feelings matter. Apparently. Here's Samantha B using comedy to make a powerful historical point. When we make such a dramatic change to something no one ever looks at, we have to consider the fragile feelings of white men who <laughs> tragically appear on only seven out of seven bills currently in production. Now, where on earth could I find a white man sharing his feelings? How could you be remaking American history at this rate? It's Cor incredible. As others feel ousting a past president who's done so much in the founding of our country is an unbelievable uh, sign of disrespect. I mean, you look at a guy yes. that is a, is a key member of, uh, of America. It's true. If you listen closely to Ventura Highway or A Horse With No Name, you can hear key member Andrew Jackson playing tambourine. But I hate to break it to you, Sparky. Jackson wasn't involved in the founding of our country because the Revolutionary War happened before Old Hickory's pubes came in. He was not a founding father. He was a genocidal who forced the relocation of non-whites and fomented populist rebellion. Kind of like a Trump with better hair. Any other stupid ideas? Create a whole new denomination, like a $6 bill or a $12 bill. That would be something. Yeah, that would be something. Make the black person worth exactly three-fifths of the white person's value. Gee, why hasn't anybody ever thought of that before? The irony, the reality, that America, a black enslaved woman on one side and a slave-owning Native American genocide-creating president on the other. Let's talk Harriet Tubman's $20 bill. Professor Blair Kelly. This is complicated, I think, right? Rightly so, many people um, bristle at the idea of putting um, a black woman who had to liberate herself from uh, slavery on the U.S. currency, given that her identity was grounded in her value as an enslaved person. Um, 
it it kind of leaves you feeling a little a little too much <laughs> in terms of the irony <laughs> of of that process that American wealth is grounded in the history of slavery mm-hmm. and and women like Tubman uh for generations on the other hand um I'm a person who really does love uh, the intervention of symbols um I love going to a country with black folk and seeing black folk on the money. Um, When I went to Jamaica, I was like, hey, look at that, black money. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's not technically liberatory, but it gives you a jolt of interest and excitement and, um, you know, a a bit of historicity for anybody who's interested. And so, um, you know, in our Obama moment where we're experiencing someone who gives us that as president, right? You know, that jolt of, hey, black president, you know, jazz at the White House and hip hop and woo! And then on the other hand, we're like, um, America didn't change into something different, right? You know, the, the, the ship of state is still going in the same direction, no matter who's at the helm of it. Um, so it leaves me feeling that way. Um, but if we have to put a, a, a beautiful symbol of, um, um, Black folk on money. Um, I think Harriet Tubman going first uh, is a wonderful um, uh, acknowledgement of the kind of person um, that we'd love to remember. A person, a black woman who um, struggled with disability, who struggled with the trauma of slavery, and yet found a way to lead um, and to risk her own uh, well-being to assist her community and to use the knowledge she gained through her struggle uh, to liberate herself, um, to to free her family, to free people in her community, and to really undermine um, the soundness of the slavery that she knew. Um, And then to go on and be a voice in what would happen in black people's lives uh, after the close of the American Civil War and the general emancipation. And so... If a few more people know who she is, especially if they know the, the you know real history and not that she was like a swashbuckling superhero, um, but that she was a real woman who did this kind of amazing work, um, that's a good thing. I mean, money is problematic, and but I, I think you know it reminds us of the messiness of the the, the American project. Lene Denise, my first question was, what would James Baldwin say? Um, how would he read this American performance of racial progress? And, um, you know, I couldn't agree more with Simonista Jones' reading of this, which is that her legacy, Tubman's legacy, is rooted in resisting the foundation of American capitalism. Tubman didn't respect American, you know, America's economic system, so making her a symbol of it would be insulting. Um, I, I, I'm struggling. I saw black faces on the money of, um, you know, South African rands, but also I felt, saw, observed um, legacies of apartheid. So again, it's a kind of progress that feels slightly confusing to me and and very bizarre. Um, And I I just don't buy the symbolic gesture as progress, Um, not as we're faced with a new Jim Crow system that has many of us locked in cages, not with ongoing state-sanctioned violence against black and brown bodies, cops. Cops can still kill black men, women, and children with impunity, and that impunity closes the gap between Harriet Tubman's 19th century and now. So I just don't feel like this country has dealt with this history and the way that history informs our daily lives, honestly enough to put Harriet's face on its money. 
Um, it feels premature and slightly manipulative. It's like, don't pacify us. This isn't what justice looks like. And the fact that Harriet will be, you know, sharing a bill with the slave-owning Trail of Tears, Andrew Jackson character, um, it's just ridiculous to me. And I'm, and I'm amazed by what this nation is willing to do to protect white innocence and to protect the American origin myth. So I'm much more interested in, in having a conversation about the ways that black women continue to be imprisoned for economic survival crimes. Um, I'm more interested in a conversation, especially now, about Bill and Hillary Clinton's role in the 1996 Welfare Reform Act and the measures they took to generate the ideas that gave life to the black welfare queen myth, um, the ways that they accused black women and other women of color of depleting the country's resources without accounting for the legacies of slavery and structural racism. So no thank you. For me, let Harriet rest in peace, and let's talk about dismantling the prison industrial complex, because for me, that's where the currency is. This is interesting um, to me. When I first heard about it, it was about um, which woman would go on the $20 bill. So it began a, as with this, I think it was a color change petition. It wasn't not necessarily protesting anything, but asking people for their suggestions and contributions for who should be on the $20 bill. And then came the announcement, and as I was following it as a news story, the announcement came that it was going to be Harriet Tubman quite early, but it didn't, it wasn't followed up with an official announcement from the Treasury. So there was this long, long waiting gap. And in that gap, when the final announcement came, it was going to be Harriet Tubman on one side and Andrew Jackson on the other, which suggests to me that whatever it ended up being, that's not what the original intention may have been. So I have... A similar reaction to Harriet Tubman being on the $20 bill as I had to Yaa Asantua being on the 20 city bills. I'm in Ghana, our currency is cities. And for a while, Yaa Asantua, who's a freedom fighter of the Ashanti people, was on the 20 city bill. And I think about, I think about um, the Americans for whom history is this tiny, tiny slice of recycled um, non-reality and non-rhetoric that they've heard again and again and again. And I just, I, I kind of think about somebody pulling out a $20 bill, looking at this woman's face and saying, well, who the hell is that on the $20 bill? And it becomes a moment for parts of America who have no relationship to this history to begin a relationship to this history. And so I take all of your points, um, Lene Denise, and I, I think it's incredibly insulting to put Harriet Tubman on one side and Andrew Jackson on the other. Um, but I also say that is actually reflective of America's reality, that in doing that, it's a truth-telling moment that steps away from the insistence on the persona of a humanity that is not manifest in the practice, particularly towards black women. And so I think about that. I think about, I think about somebody in the Midwest who, who, for whom this conversation is a completely alien space and may literally know Harriet Tubman as the swashbuckling, slave-wielding. They know nothing about who she is. And that could become a school project. It could be a question that is asked just because she's on the money. And so I wonder about, can we, is there a value there? Is there an important, significant value there? Same thing for Yaa Santua in a, in a society where male presidents have been on all of our city currency, when Yasanta was there, the kid who gets a $20 bill from his dad to give to his mom, who looks down and says, oh, who's that? Who's Yasanta? Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, I'm a historian, right? 
And so I think I, I can't um, not say that any moment where we get to interject a tiny bit of history is is okay. Because, I mean, the, the wider conversations about American capital, about exploitation, about labor, about prison systems, about justice always have to happen, right? Those, those are continual. Um, I, don't, I don't know how um, seeing if we can intervene ever so slightly could improve things. If, if, if some, as you were saying, um, some school children in the Midwest who've never really heard of black people or seen black folk can really think, well, well why would she be such a big deal? And, and maybe maybe the teacher would want to do a project about black women and slavery. I, you know, all good for it, because what I see happening in our schools currently is the complete silencing and erasure of that history and an unwillingness to even talk about it. At, at one point, um, several states had, um, I think probably Alex-sponsored moves to um, take early American history of slavery completely out of school curriculums. Um, and, and I think that that intentional erasure is, is important for us to, to watch and to see. And so uh, if you don't tell that story, you don't know where America comes from. If you don't tell that story, black people look like uh, we're just, you know, here complaining about things and, and not working hard and not trying really hard and not really American and really need to go away and all the, all the sort of mytholo mythological crap that white supremacy dumps on each generation of young right. people. If we can intervene in that ever so slightly, um, I think that's a fine thing. And so, you know, that, that's the project of my life, right, to, 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 to say, no, really, black people are fundamentally American. Most black American people can trace their roots back before the, the Revolutionary War. It blows people's minds. If you can talk about um, the essential role that Harriet Tubman played in winning the Civil War, it blows my students' minds. And so... You know, if a if hundred people heard about Harriet Tubman and thought about her in a substantive way because of this one intervention, then all for the good. Um, money yeah. is wrong and, and, you know, does really wrong things in our lives every day. And yet, if we could just talk about history for a second, it, it might be a little bit better. Okay. And I, I don't think it's revolutionary. I don't think it's, you know, the, the symbolism is, is everything or an answer uh, to our problems. But I, I don't think it's not part of our answer and I think and I just have like maybe just a sentence or so I just you know I feel like we're still battling for an honest place in history in American textbooks and my question for this idea or this this move to put her face on the $20 bill is what is the national education process look like at this point will teachers be required to teach this history in the ways that they've been required to include Andrew Jackson's history into the American curriculum like I I want to know what this process is or, or what the sort of package deal is because the face on the 20 insulting as it is um, ridiculous as it is bizarre as it is to me is is also not enough really u.s treasury department have some respect just a little respect Time for Hot Topic 2, <sighs> the death of Prince. To even put those words together just feels unacceptable. And yet, on April 21st, Prince Rogers Nelson, musical legend, the Purple Rain Man, was called home. Prince, 
is dead. Fifty-seven years old, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, record producer, actor, performance maestro. He of the heels and the black eyeliner, the guitar mastery, his lyrics, his musical influence, his power. Minneapolis-born, he sold over 100 million records worldwide. He's in fact one of the best-selling artists of all time. He's won seven Grammys, a Golden Globe Award, an Academy Award for the film Purple Rain. He was actually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004, the first year of his eligibility. Rolling Stone ranked Prince at number 27 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. I had no idea how many awards Prince had won, but I know how I feel every time I hear Purple Rain or that guitar intro on When Doves Cry, or that lyric, 23 positions in a one night stand in Get Off, or Sign of the Times, the title track from that album. His debut album, For You, in 1978, his platinum selling album, Prince, the 1980 Dirty Mind, the 1981 Controversy, and 1999 in 1982, and the later albums, Diamond and Pearls, Musicology, Funk, Rock, Soul, and still, this doesn't encapsulate Prince. The tributes are pouring in from all over the world. The stories, the rare performance footage is being dug out, played and replayed. And still, I have to keep repeating these three words. Prince is dead. That's your hour. Thank you to Lene Denise and Blair Kelly. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter, at Esther Armour. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.